June 13th, 2016, Secretary of State John Kerry is hosting a Ramadan dinner at his home in Georgetown for a special guest from Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's commonly called, then the country's new defense minister. A tall, bearded man wearing a sports coat and slacks instead of the traditional white Saudi thobe, MBS notices as he's walking in the grand piano in Kerry's living room. After America's top diplomat gives his consent, the Saudi visitor sits down and proceeds to start playing, much to the astonishment of the assembled guests, the Moonlight Sonata by Ludwig von Beethoven. I was just, uh, you know, watching him uh, show a considerable virtuosity on the piano, on the keys. I mean, we were all surprised. Somebody had trained him well. Musical performance by the Saudi prince that night was just one element in an extraordinary charm offensive that wooed American diplomats, members of Congress, business leaders, Hollywood moguls, and journalists, and shaped a narrative that quickly took hold, that this new young man was a breath of fresh air in the Middle East, a charismatic and cultured reformer who would bring his country into the 21st century. It was a narrative that at that point more than impressed the Secretary of State. He's the only person I've met in 30 years of my involvement or more with, with Saudi Arabia who has put that kind of a vision on the table for the transformation of the country. But MBS's heralded swing through the corridors of American power was also a diversion, masking a Mr. Hyde side to this new Saudi Dr. Jekyll. For just as Western elites and American officials were showering MBS with praise, there were already brief glimpses of much darker impulses. He had launched a barbaric war in Saudi Arabia's southern neighbor, Yemen, that through a relentless wave of bombing raids was slaughtering innocent civilians by the thousands. More than a thousand people have died since the Saudi-led bombing campaign began in late March. And he would soon initiate a brutal crackdown against internal dissent, imprisoning and torturing activists, locking up members of the royal family, compiling a blacklist of perceived enemies, and ultimately sanctioning in the most grisly of fashions the execution of the country's most prominent journalist. The CIA has determined that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the assassination of Khashoggi. I'm Michael Isakoff. Welcome back to Conspiracyland, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is Episode 5, The Rise of the Bullet Guy. In the spring of 2015, there was something of a scramble among journalists to learn about a new power figure who was fast emerging in Saudi Arabia. MBS, then 29, had just been named Deputy Crown Prince, in effect the kingdom's number three official. He was placed in charge of the country's military by his father, the country's new king, Salman, who inherited the throne upon the death of his brother, Abdullah. And yet, almost nothing was known about MBS. 
Unlike some of his older brothers, one of whom had once owned a Kentucky Derby winner, Muhammad had never spent time in the United States, never studied abroad, and had had few interactions with Westerners. Ben Hubbard of the New York Times began digging into MBS's past and quickly picked up a disturbing story about something that happened a few years earlier, when the young prince was dabbling in the real estate business and resorted to some heavy-handed tactics to get what he wanted. Yeah, he was interested in acquiring a piece of valuable property. The person who owned it didn't want to sell it. So he just went to the the cleric who ran the, the property registry office and basically tried to tell him, you need to just sign this land over to me. The guy basically said, this would be an illegal transaction. I'm not going to do it. And so MBS sent him a bullet in an envelope as a lesson to, you know, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't do what I want. And some version, it's a story that sort of lives on in the elite circles in Riyadh. Some versions of the story, there's two two bullets in the envelope. Um, but basically, this guy got very alarmed, talked to his boss, who, you know, then got word to the king at the time, King Abdullah, who then called MBS's father and said, you need to get your son in line. So this is a story that a lot of people tell in Riyadh about, you know, this guy was, before he sort of became known as this reformer who wanted to shake everything up, he had a reputation as a troublemaker. And it gave him uh, sort of a nickname in Saudi circles. Yeah, people started referring to him as this Arabic phrase, Abu Rasasa, which sort of roughly translates as the bullet guy. There was another bizarre incident about the bullet guy that Hubbard heard. For reasons that nobody seemed to understand, he had once locked up his own mother. I heard it from a surprising number of people, you know, who had worked in the U.S. government at the time. And I also heard about it from other members of the royal family, people who knew MBS's mother and who used to see her at family functions. And then all of a sudden, she just sort of disappeared and stopped showing up. And I think for a lot of people who were trying to figure out who this guy is, raised a lot of questions about his judgment and his management of even things like his own immediate family. But there was one U.S. government official who was impressed with MBS from the outset. My name is Joseph Westfall. I am currently a professor at the University of Pennsylvania at the Lauder Institute. I was a U.S. ambassador in Saudi Arabia between 2014 and 2017. Joseph Westphal, a former undersecretary of the Army, was President Barack Obama's chief envoy in Riyadh and quickly became one of MBS's biggest champions. First of all, we shared a, a really nice sense of humor. We, we laughed, we, we joked around. It was, it was never, it, was never, it wasn't like you go in and you tell a dirty joke or something like that, or a, any joke for that matter. It was just laughing about life and, and talking about things that maybe happened to me or happened to him. And on matters of concern to the United States, he seemed to be saying and doing the right things for the most part. So I went in and talked to him about almost everything and anything. Uh, when I had issues, for example, with the religious police, the Matawa at the time, reports were coming out of more and more violations of, of people's rights on the streets, mostly people who were coming from other countries. And his reaction wasn't defensive. It was, we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with that. It's, it's a challenge for us because we are a conservative. There's still a very strong religious community here. They're not going to like this, but we're going to deal with this because we can't go forward with this kind of behavior. And he did, literally a month later. And MBS's ambitions to shake up his country and overhaul its oil-based economy were equally clear. The next step, when, when, when he became the deputy crown prince, 
he began to, to put together a plan for an economic transformation of Saudi Arabia. Formally unveiled with great fanfare the following year, it was known as Vision 2030, crafted with the help of McKinsey and other big American consulting firms. In that plan, there was everything. The importance of women in the workplace, the importance of schools and education, uh, with measures and, and, and uh, all kinds of um, goals and objectives. Did you see MBS as a change agent? Yes, absolutely, from the very beginning, absolutely. Did you misjudge MBS? No, no, but, you know... uh, I mean, given everything that's happened since you left. Yeah, I do think he's got his, his, whatever you want to call it, dark side, strong side, whatever... Uh, part of that is, you know, holding power, keeping power, gaining power, yes. But I also think he's got this tremendous desire to see his country move forward. If MBS was the change agent that Westville thought he was, it was change that clearly had its limits, as President Obama himself discovered when he flew to Riyadh in April 2016 and met with King Salman and the rest of a Saudi entourage that included MBS. Thank you very much, Your Majesty. A lot has gotten done, and it underscores the enduring friendship and partnership between the United States uh, and the countries that are represented around this table. There was much on the president's agenda for this visit. Saudi support for the war against the Islamic State, conflict in Syria, still simmering tensions over the Iran nuclear deal. But there was also a hearty perennial for multiple U.S. administrations. The Saudis' dismal record of human rights abuses, a record that only seemed to be getting worse. Just a few months earlier, the Saudis had conducted a mass execution of 47 prisoners, including a prominent Shia cleric who had spoken out against repression of that country's Shia minority. Then the cleric's young son was condemned to death as well. A young blogger who had written about Saudi repression was sentenced by a Saudi court to 10 years in prison and to be whipped with 1,000 lashes, a medieval punishment that shocked the human rights community. When Obama, speaking from a thick stack of meticulously prepared note cards, raised U.S. concerns about some of these cases, he got some unexpected pushback that startled some of his aides. This was actually not just the perfunctory human rights stuff. Obama's like, what are you guys doing? I'm not going to defend this. That's Ben Rhodes, the strategic communications chief for Obama's National Security Council, who was present for what became a tense confrontation between MBS and the president. The normal response to something like that would be to kind of obfuscate and say, we'll look at it. But instead, before you know, King Solomon can even respond, MBS stands up in the middle of the room and begins to lecture Obama you don't understand the Saudi justice system. And if we didn't do this, our people would demand vengeance. And then he offers to get Obama, the president of the United States offers to get him a briefing on the Saudi justice system. I mean, dripping condescension, you know? And I just remember sitting there and thinking like, what, what is going on here? Like, this is, this is, I've never seen anything like this. Like, Michael, I went on every trip for eight years. Like I, I've never been in a room like that. It was totally bizarre. As Ambassador Westville remembers it, King Salman did then speak up and made it clear that, 
On this issue, there was no daylight between him and his son. I'm not sure that I remember exactly all the words he used, but the one who upbraided him was really the king. And the king says to him, he says, look, we have our judicial system, you have yours. There was no coverage of the behind-closed-door debate over human rights during the president's trip to Saudi Arabia that day. But for Rhodes and some others on the president's staff, it was a huge red flag about where the Saudis were headed, and the conduct of the king's brash young son was head-turning. It, it spoke to a personality type that is feels absolutely no guardrails, you know? I mean, if you're comfortable standing up in a room full of people and lecturing the president of the United States and offering to give him briefings on the Saudi justice system because he's you know, raising concerns about mass executions in your country, you are not the guy that people are reading about back in the New York Times and the Washington Post who's like a reformer. You know? I mean, it just, it laid bare the utter bullshit of the narrative around MBS to me. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, how are people calling this guy a modernizer, you know? For Jamal Khashoggi, the meteoric rise of the putative reformer did little to expand his own freedom to write and speak out. As we related in episode four, Khashoggi had been energized by the Arab Spring. He became an increasingly fervent apostle of democracy and greater freedoms in the Middle East without fully shedding his Muslim Brotherhood sympathies. He had been actively planning the launch of a new pan-Arab TV station to be based in Saudi Arabia's next-door neighbor to the east, Bahrain. It was a huge endeavor for which Khashoggi assembled a staff of more than 260, with bureaus and reporters stretching from Cairo to New York. And to bankroll his project, he had gotten generous financial backing and a 10-year commitment from one of his longtime patrons, Prince Awalid bin Talal. He's the same fabulously wealthy Saudi investor who, more than 20 years earlier, had paid $20 million to Donald Trump for the superyacht that had once belonged to Jamal's cousin, Adnan, the arms dealer. What happened next was a debacle. On February 1, 2015, the station went live, broadcasting from Bahrain's World Trade Center. And one of its first interviews was with a Shia activist who criticized the Bahraini officials for cracking down on Arab Spring protests four years earlier. There were a few more sensitive subjects for Bahrainis, or the Saudis, than Shia dissidents. The station was shut down that very day. Bahrain said on Monday it had suspended the operation of a new satellite news channel owned by a Saudi prince shortly after its launch because it had not done enough to combat extremism and terrorism. Jamal was crushed, says his longtime friend Wada Kanfor, the former editor-in-chief of Al Jazeera. He had reached out in hopes of finding another home for his station, meeting with officials in Turkey and Qatar, a move that did not go down well in Riyadh. Even as Khashoggi was still in the talks for a new location for his TV station, Prince Awalid, no doubt under pressure from the royal palace, pulled the plug. That was actually the turning point, if you would like to say. And then Jamal slowly, slowly started discovering that his hope of reforming the system is not actually working because now these people are leading the counter-revolutionary forces in the Arab world. I see you're creating problems again. So wrote Bernard Rubin, the NYU professor and Jamal's friend we told you about in episode three. And then he writes back to you. Then he wrote back to me. I've been thinking it's time I gave up 
and retire somewhere safe in the West, just to be free and write freely. Guy here can't do reform and keep their old tribal authoritarian mindset. We will never have freedom in the Arab world without true democracy. Jamal was still reluctant to publicly blame the royal court for whom he had once worked, or MBS himself. But he felt a growing despair about the wrenching changes in the Middle East, the crushing of the Arab Spring, the coup in Egypt, and the suppression of dissent by his own country's rulers. You can hear it if you listen closely to these comments he made in Spain to a group called the Common Action Forum in late 2015. It is a very difficult time in the Arab world. We even, we the Arabs ourselves, we don't have an agreement on uh, reading the phenomena that taking place in part of our world. The old system, I think, had proven to be false, failed. Arab Spring and the people going on the street is a proof of that failure. Jamal offered a heartfelt plea for freedom of speech, even for extremists. We in the Arab world, we will always have extremists who have ideas who are as crazy as ISIS. The only time those people flourish or their idea flourish when our system falls, when our system is dismantled, then they flourish. Our choice in the Arab world to maintain harmony is to introduce diversity, pluralism, and dialogue. Then we will live with each other. I, I am very pessimistic about that. I don't see a solution in the new horizon. It will take a very long time. Then Jamal made an interesting analogy and offered up a slender reason for hope many years down the road. He had recently met with a group of politicians and academics from Chile and Argentina, two countries that had suffered under bloody authoritarian regimes in the 1970s and 80s, but were now democratic. We in the Arab world, we are coming from dictatorship into democracy with difficulties. They, in South America, Latin America, they also come from dictatorship into democracy, and it took them maybe 30 or 40 years with up and downs. With the, We need next time to exchange notes about their experience. Maybe we could learn something from that. In March 2015, Saudi officials called up their counterparts in the U.S. and told them that, with their allies in the United Arab Emirates, they were going to war in Yemen. This last-minute warning was known in the Obama administration as the 10 minutes to midnight phone call, and there was little doubt why they got it. MBS, the new defense minister, was flexing his muscles. Gerard Firestein, then Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Near East, remembers it well. It was not a, what do you think if, or would you support us if, uh, or uh, do you have an objection to. Um, The the Saudis made up their mind that they were going to do this, uh, and there was, uh, you know, a a consideration of that within the administration, and a decision was made that we would uh, support it. That initial decision to back and even assist the Saudi attack was a fateful move that many in the Obama administration would come to regret. 
The Saudis had been concerned when the Houthis, a religious minority group loosely aligned with the Iranians, had seized control of Yemen's capital city of Aden. Convinced that there was now a threat to his country's southern border and determined to assert Saudi military might in the region, MBS ordered a blockade of the country and a merciless aerial attack on Houthi strongholds using billions of dollars worth of weapons purchased from American defense contractors. Almost immediately, there were reports of devastating civilian casualties, including one that wiped out a steam power plant in the port city of Mokhtar. A day of deadly bombing by Saudi-led warplanes. Witnesses said many civilians were caught up in the blast. Belkis Villa, a researcher for Human Rights Watch in Yemen, rushed to the scene. The scene there is 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 something that I that that I never will forget. There were families with with their bare hands digging through the rubble, trying to find uh, not just bodies of their loved ones, but missing body parts of their loved ones. When we were there, uh, the death toll at that point was 65 people who had been killed, uh, all civilians, including 10 children um, and, and dozens more wounded. And I remember starting to interview one man who at the beginning of, of, of my speaking to him was, you know, fairly, fairly stoic and, 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 and stayed. And then suddenly, halfway through the interview, he just broke and, and broke down crying and started just screaming and crying um, and, and couldn't, just couldn't understand why he had lost his family. And that was really the thing that came through so clearly was that people just didn't understand why them and, and wh- why on earth this had happened. And was this a Houthi stronghold, this village? No, so this this area of the country at the time had very little Houthi presence as far as we could tell. It was not an area that's historically linked to the Houthis at all. We tried to figure out what on earth the Saudis could possibly think was a target there. Villa filed reports on the bombardments back to Human Rights Watch in New York. Sarah Lee Whitson, the director of the group's Middle East division, began to rattle the cage in Washington. Pouring through the rubble left in the aftermath of some of the Saudi attacks, Villa and other Human Rights Watch researchers had found the remains of American cluster bombs. That was one of the most disturbing aspects of the bombardment on this market that we had found. Since uh, that reporting and since that time, of course, there have been countless documentation of U.S. manufactured bombs uh, being used on markets, on schools, on people's homes, on hospitals, on clinics throughout the country. And it's very important for people to understand that the United States wasn't just selling arms, you know, sort of a neutral third-party salesman in this. The United States is a party to the war and has been a party to the war since its beginning because it's actively assisting the Saudis in this war by providing intelligence support, by providing refueling uh, of uh, Saudi aircraft. It completely undermined the U.S.'s ability to speak with any moral clarity or any credibility as a serious, legitimate actor with values and interests that extend to the human beings of this region. In Riyadh, Ambassador Westville tried to raise the issue with little success. 
Yeah, yeah, well, because you know, we we had so many occasions in which they killed, you know, civilians, and in which there was, you know, just this utter destruction of, you know, and and it would come back to bite everybody because the human rights community was up in arms. The you know our own Congress was up in arms about this, and so we kept going to them and say, "You cannot do this," you know. So when you confronted MBS about this, what would he say? He would say the things that he's been saying about this all the time, which is, you know, what would you do if, if on your frontier, if you had, you know, these people, are, you know, we had two, at that time, about 2,000 Saudis had lost their lives, uh, civilians across the border from them firing rockets and artillery into, into Saudi Arabia. They had to abandon cities and schools and stuff like that. So they, you know, they kept saying, what would you do if this was happening on your frontier? Would you just sit by and not let anything happen? And, you know, we had answers for that, but not answers that they that made any, you know, that helped them fix this problem. For the record, those Houthi rocket attacks on Saudi territory that Westville is referring to didn't start until after MBS began his country's bombardment of Yemen, not before. And even advocates for the Saudis came to believe that MBS had other motives in launching the war than the immediate threat to his country's southern border. That's what I heard from Ali Shahabi, a prolific Saudi commentator and author who has spent considerable time with MBS and has been one of his country's most outspoken defenders in the United States. At one point, he set up an organization called the Arabia Foundation that was funded with over $3 million from Saudi businessmen close to the royal palace all to promote the Saudi worldview. So I think that the, the Saudi military, first of all, was inexperienced and did not perform well in the Yemen war because it traditionally had not been designed to fight. It was a parade ground military. And Prince Mohammed had taken the view that I'm going to convert my military from a parade ground military with expensive toys into a fighting military. And there's nothing like a real war and real bullets to expose your troops to going up the learning curve. So are you suggesting that the war in Yemen is a training exercise for the Saudi well, military? No, it, it served partially that purpose because it was a step where Saudi Arabia realized it has to fight its own battles going forward. Whatever the motivation, the reports of Saudi missteps and the horrible human suffering they were causing created a dilemma for the Obama White House. There was a lot of discussions within the administration about what, what we should do. Rob Malley was then at the White House National Security Council coordinating policy for the Middle East. Like many of his colleagues, he was horrified by the reports crossing his desk about the innocents being slaughtered by the Saudis in Yemen using American weapons. So, again, I can't remember the exact uh, sequence of when we saw the first reports, but we were seeing a number of reports, and I think the first other than us feeling quite repelled by what, by what we were seeing. But the first instinct was, well, let's see if whether we could give them advice on how to make sure that they don't uh, kill civilians again. But it turns out time and again, whether it's a mosque, whether it's a market, whether it's whatever it is, they would not only hit it once, it hit it twice, sometimes more. At some point, the State Department uh, legal counselor's office begins a review of whether the U.S. is complicit in war crimes. Correct. I don't think the conclusion, as I recall, the conclusion was not that they were legally complicit. But, you know, it was getting close to the line. 
But President Obama and his top aides, focused on Iran and stopping the spread of ISIS in Syria, were reluctant to provoke a confrontation with Riyadh by cutting off military assistance for the Saudi assault. There was a meeting of the Principals Committee chaired by President Obama. And as I recall, there were no real voices saying we can't, we should say no. There were voices expressing a lot of concern and worry that we could support an operation and very quickly it could snowball. I think President Obama felt he could not, given everything else that was happening in the region, afford a crisis with one of the few countries with which we still retained, well, maybe not one of the few, but one of the countries with which we still retained strong relations and cooperation on a whole host of issues, counterterrorism, first and foremost. But some, like Mali, had more than a few qualms. I was extremely uh, um, troubled by the whole decision because we should not have been complicit in this war. And, you know, the U.S. makes enormous uh, I mean, you know, mistakes is, is, is probably too, too kind a word uh, to describe many of its actions. And the whole experience was yet another red flag about the architect of the Saudi offensive, the king's bullheaded son, the Saudi defense minister, MBS. Well, again, I think there are a lot of people who raised questions about his judgment on some key issues and that he seemed to be overly oblivious to the consequences of the actions that he took. And this was his war to a large degree because he was the one who, who appeared to order it. In 2016, Times reporter Hubbard made his way into Yemen and was floored by what he discovered. A country literally reduced to rubble. What we found is that there were all these factories that had been operating sort of in the, in the parts of Yemen I was able to visit that had been bombed by the Saudis. Um, and, and, you know, the Saudis could always say, oh, they were dual use, and the Houthis, this militant group, had been using them for military technology, and I didn't find any evidence of that whatsoever. It just seemed like they were striking key infrastructure because they wanted to weaken the place, and they were basically dismantling the economy. I mean, we visited a cement factory that was actually like a government cement factory that employed a bunch of people. They had bombed that and put it out of commission. We visited a pipe factory. Um, you know, we visited a place that made water pumps that they used for irrigation. That had been bombed and totally put out of commission. But what struck him most of all was the destruction of another facility that seemed in a category all by itself. The one that really got me was we visited a potato chip factory. This is an old family business. They were the first people to start making sort of prepackaged snacks. They had corn curls and potato chips and things like that. They were the first people to start making these inside of Yemen. And uh, the factory got bombed right in the middle of a shift. A potato factory. Yeah, potato chips. But potato chips and snacks, I mean, there's clearly no, no dual use, you know, sort of issue going on here. It was sort of in this big hangar with a tin roof and huge hole in the roof where the bomb had come through and there was sort of, you know, everything inside had been melted, the machinery was all destroyed, and then there were sort of potato chip wrappers that had been going into the machine to package new potato chips that were scattered all over the place. Some of them were burned, and it was one of the sons who gave us a tour, and he just sort of pointed out, you know, the people who had died, where they were standing along the assembly line when the bomb has, when the bombs had come down, and how they had been killed. So it was quite, you know, quite dramatic, and, um, you know, just really brought home the human cost of this intervention. After Hubbard wrote about all this for the New York Times, he got an indignant phone call from a high-ranking Saudi official. 
It was Major General Ahmed Asiri, a close confidant of MBS, then the official spokesman for the Saudi military operation, and soon to be named Deputy Chief of Saudi Intelligence. Hubbard had sent Asiri a list of detailed questions before the article ran, and got back blanket denials of any wrongdoing by the Saudis. He sent me responses. We condensed those responses, put them and published them in the story. And then he was, when he saw what the final product was, he was quite angry about it and called me up and complained. And what did he say? I mean, he basically said, I, I told you that we're not destroying Yemen's economy. Why didn't you say that in your story? Like, why doesn't your article say that? And I said, well, because everything else we saw convinced me that you were. So like your denial isn't, you know, that's not right. going to change the, the everything that I saw when I was in Yemen. It was after that, says Hubbard, that a Siri took steps to make sure such reports never surfaced again. He banned journalists from taking U.N. flights into the country, choking off access for the Western media to report on how the Saudis were laying waste to the country they professed to want to save. As Ben Hubbard continued his reporting on the rise of MBS and the devastating impact of the Yemen war, he started to pay increasing attention to another curious figure who was keeping close tabs on what he and his fellow journalists were writing. His name was Saud al-Qahtani. He's the henchman you heard about in the first episode of this series, a former journalist turned hacker who landed a position as the royal court's media monitor under King Abdullah. Then King Abdullah dies, his previous boss, and King Salman comes in in 2015, and Saud al-Qahtani basically makes his pitch to MBS that, you know, I have all these skills that I can use to help you on your way up. You know, you have a lot of people who are out to get you, and I know a lot about how to do this online stuff that's going to help you out, and MBS brings him on as a deputy, and his power just increases for a number of years. He just becomes a huge, huge deal. MBS gives him tremendous resources, which he uses to sort of do a kind of electronic, you know, somewhat electronic warfare in favor of MBS. Some of what Al-Qahtani was doing during this period was eerily similar to what the Russian Internet Research Agency was doing at just about the same time to disrupt the 2016 American presidential election, creating bots and fake social media accounts to concoct narratives. In Qahtani's case, the goal was clear, to promote the strategic goals of MBS and to target his enemies. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about something uh, he created called the Blacklist. Ah, the Blacklist. Yeah, this was a very sort of McCarthyist, you know, where he basically got on his Twitter feed, which by then had millions of followers. I mean, he was a huge force on the Saudi Twitter sphere. And he basically said, we're not going to accept any, any, you know, any criticism from people. And we want our citizens to all fall in line. And so I want, basically, he called on his followers to submit names to the blacklist. You tell me who the problems are, and we're going to go after them. And it didn't take long for one name to rise to the top of the list. Next on Conspiracy Land, the Saudis are accused of launching covert influence operations in the United States including recruiting spies inside the U.S. headquarters of Twitter to steal personal information about dissidents criticizing MBS. Our chief justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas, is in Washington with the details. Good morning, Pierre. George, good morning. It's a deeply disturbing story. Allegations of compromised Twitter employees willing to access and steal the private information of users who were seen as critics of the Saudi government. A spy plot that allegedly reached right into the royal court. And then I think MBS saw it as a moment to brag, saying, yeah, it was us, we did that. We have our guy at Twitter 
That's next on Conspiracy Land, Episode 6, Influence Operations. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout-out to the folks at Long Story Short, executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And, of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.